Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Friday, and we're not even joking this time. Welcome. Grab your stool. We have good, good and crazy martinis for the Three Martini Lunch today. But Jim, uh, before we get to our martinis, we got to take a quick look at what the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee is up to. Uh, Real quick, he was on with Anderson Cooper and Dr. Sanjay Gupta last night, and he was on there for several minutes. He seemed kind of halting most of the time, even when he was able to get his points across, and then he had another Biden moment. You know, there's a, uh, during World War II, uh, you know, where Roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that, uh, you know, was totally different than a then the, the it's called he called it the you know the World War II he had the war the the War Production Board. So Jim, I'm not sure what the uh, Democratic spin on this is going to be. It seemed like he either had his comments written and he still couldn't spit them out, or maybe he was just looking down to try and remember what he wanted to say in the first place. But it took him about 20 seconds to say what he could have said in about five. So uh, are Democrats getting? more worried about Joe Biden at this point during this whole shutdown or, or less? I think they probably should be. I've never felt so much like Dr. Sanjay Gupta in my life. <laughs> uh, as, as you could see, he didn't want to have any particular facial expression reaction to how Biden was struggling to get his words out, but he could not completely succeed. I felt like you're watching, you know, your child ride the bike without training wheels for the first time. You're like, uh, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Uh, you know, Look, we all have moments where we are less than verbally as uh, astute as we'd like to be. We all have moments we get tripped over our words. Greg, you may recall at the beginning of this, when we were talking about how this was going to affect the presidential race, and I said, this is going to put it on hiatus for a while. I said, well, you know, also like, you know, Biden's 77 years old and, you know, he's probably going to be fine with it. You know, a couple of weeks off of kind of, you know, a much less uh, exhaustive schedule, less travel, eh, probably be good for him. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe he's going stir crazy. Maybe being stuck inside is uh, not good for him. Although, obviously, he's getting out to the yard every now and then, stuff like that. But, uh, man, that is um, that's uh, that was not a good moment. Hopefully, he's doing okay. But that's not the kind of tone you want to see in a guy who could be the next president of the United States. No. When you say getting out in the yard, it makes me think he's Andy Dufresne or something. But... Uh, he, <laughs> It makes Robert Mueller's public testimony seem like a tour de force of <laughs> of rhetoric C- and Cicero. Glibness. Yes, yes. You know. not uh, not not as good as it could have been. But you know, when the chips were down, we thought he was going to flop all over the place in that one-on-one against Bernie. He didn't, and so who knows what'll happen with the debates? But I know the Trump people uh, are drooling over the possibility of that. So we'll see how it all unfolds. But uh, Jim, our first good martini is that things will actually start to unfold, perhaps slower than some people want. But uh, we actually do now have a plan plan to re-engage in terms of work, in terms of the economy, and so forth. We got a lot of different layers here. There's three phases that uh, the economists and the healthcare experts and the president have all worked out, and you've got to meet certain criteria before you can even begin the phases, like a downward trajectory of flu-like illnesses, downward trajectory of COVID-like cases, downward trajectory of documented cases getting to the point where uh, hospitals can treat everyone without crisis care. 
and then you slowly phase back in. You've got, uh, in, in the first phase, you still got people with masks uh, probably early on, especially with public transit. Got to be careful with the social distancing. Vulnerable folks still need to shelter in place. And then slowly, as you get better and better statistics, uh, you can definitely move into more people going back to work, back to school, and eventually by phase three, most things are normal. So again, it might not happen as fast as a lot of people want, but I think the fact that there's actually a plan now is encouraging to a lot of people. Yeah, this was by and large what we wanted to see from the federal government. Um, a couple of people were complaining about lack of specifics, and it's a fair gripe, but I think one of the things we have to keep in mind for all this is, I'm going to sound really intellectual here, was it von Clausewitz? Who, who was the one who said a, a plan never survives uh, contact with the enemy? Ultimately, we could quote the philosopher Mike Tyson, who said, everybody's <laughs> yes. got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes. What we, you know, what we do moving forward from here, we're, we're, some things are going to work well, some things are not going to work well, and we're probably going to have to adjust on the fly. Um, you're not going to be able to predict every variable of all this, which is one of the points we keep in mind when we're discussing all those models. This may work better than we expect. It's probably not going to. I think caution is going to have to be a watchword. I think what they're saying about masks um, is probably going to be a factor in our lives for a very long time. Ideally, you'd have a lot of testing going on. I think most of the countries, that, particularly in Asia, that have seen really you know, uh, good results and managed to keep the infection rates relatively low, although I think it's worth noting they've had a little bit of an upcreep in the last couple of weeks, comes from contact tracing. And some of that's you know, tracking on your phone, but also it's just a matter of being able to figure out who has it quickly, being able to figure out who they've been around, who they've been in contact with, getting those folks to self-quarantine until they can get tested and they can be make sure. Um, I mean, here's the, if we all knew exactly whether we had it, the instant we caught it, this would be extremely easy to solve, right? We would just self-isolate everybody who's got it. You'd only go to the hospital if you needed it. We've had a couple other, you know, good news in the form of, of treatments. We'll talk about it later, Martini. The problem is the people who can be walking around and spreading it without knowing it. And that's, you know, the only way you can really function around that is, uh, is, is widespread testing. And based on what we're seeing so far, we just, you know, like I've heard various arguments about, you know, one of the more interesting theories I've heard floating around is that states actually have a surplus of tests right now. But they know that once people go back to the workplace, whether it's in, a week, two weeks, shortly into May at some point, that they're going to need a lot more testing, that in fact, you're going to have a lot more suspected cases. And that's when you're going to need all these extra tests. That's the only good reason to have the low rate of testing we're having at this point. It was ramping up really well for a while, and then it's sort of plateaued, and it's actually backslid a little bit, which is a little bit unnerving. Um, you know, I, I think what the White House put out yesterday is perfectly fine. And I think that we need to have, you know, patience and understanding as this goes step by step. We need to know the plan is going to have to be adjusted on the fly. Eventually, we will um, be okay. But uh, it's, it's a long, still a long road ahead. No, absolutely right. And I'm just looking at phase one here. And, and actually, it's the guidelines for all phases for employers. And one of them is temperature checks. Can't you just imagine uh, the HR director in full PPE and a mask with the uh, forehead thermometer with everyone walking in at the beginning of the day. I think that'd be a little surreal. <laughs> yeah, yes. Look, it's very tough to get to a regime where everybody knows whether they have the virus or not without something that, but by making it universal, it means you have to be testing everywhere you go. And that inevitably starts to feel like an all controlling government sort of thing. Um, as somebody, you know, one of the examples was, I think it's in South Korea to go into most skyscrapers. There's a little place in the lobby. They, they stick the temperature 
you know, thermometer on your head and they take your temperature and stuff like that. These are going to feel invasive. These are going to feel, you know, semi-police statey or something like that. Unfortunately, it's really tough to figure out any way to get out of this mess without some steps that are going to feel this way. All right, let's move on to our second good martini now, Jim. And we've got a double batch of good news here in this one. This is on the medical side. And we've got some very promising news on treatment. No, we're not talking about chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine on this uh, particular instance, uh, although the, the results on that appear to be more mixed than we originally thought. But that's a conversation for another day. But another treatment that we've actually heard about for a while now, but doesn't get talked about a lot possibly because a lot of people, including me, don't really know how to pronounce it, but it's called remdesivir, as far as I can tell. And as you report in the Morning Jolt today, uh, according to the University of Chicago, the best news is that most of our patients have already been discharged, which is great. We've only had two patients perish. And so uh, the results on this have been very, very good. And the other thing you mentioned, Jim, and this was actually in a CNN story, is uh, doctors are seeing fantastic results just by moving patients who are not in good shape at all onto their stomachs. And it drastically improves their oxygen saturation rate. One of them mentioned uh, in the article, seeing a patient improve from 85% to 98%, which is massive. Yeah, you know, that, that was one of those things where I, I'll be honest, you know, in all of my reading of this recent, but this is coming from heads of hospitals and things like that. This is not some quack doctor coming along and maybe I'm foreshadowing our next uh, martini. <laughs> um, you know, uh, th I'll be honest, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't figure there to be that big a difference of your oxygenation, the, your lungs' ability to get oxygen to the rest of your body, uh, depending on what position you're on. Uh, it's not, by the way, it's not like sleep apnea where the person's got, you know, they, they're pretty sure that's not the issue. It's something to do with the lungs and the positioning of that. We'll figure it out why it works uh, pretty soon. But the more important thing is, if it's working, <laughs> let's do it. Let's have as many people try it as possible. And let's see if that ends up improving the amount of oxygen getting into their blood. Very, you know, the, the, red, eh, the one that starts with R, <laughs> we've seen some good news on. Um, and as I mentioned a bit in the morning, Joel, today, people are probably wondering, well, how about uh, chloroquine and hydrochloroquine? Well, the evidence is mixed. And that does not mean Trump was right. That does not mean Trump was wrong. It means, you know, lo and behold, different medicines are going to affect different people. Because the president talked about it, this has turned into a partisan football. And everybody wants to seize upon every bit of data we have and every study that says, you know, ah, oh, this works. Trump was right. Or, ah, oh, this doesn't work. Trump was crazy. You know, and it, it gets into this very frustrating inability to, to look at the fact that, eh, you know, a lot of this and probably many other medicines are going to work okay, or they might work some and not work in others. And it's not going to be a miracle cure, but it's also not going to be useless either. And we, you know, those of us who are not doctors probably shouldn't run around telling doctors what they should and shouldn't do because they know their patients best. Probably the one that's most troubling was a study down in Brazil. They really couldn't have a control group for the experiment because here's the thing. If you have, you know, traditionally when you're doing an experiment, you do a medicine for one group of people and you give the other people a placebo, meaning something, a sugar pill, something that doesn't really affect their body. So that if you see improvement in both groups, it means that actually, okay, it was not the drug that was doing it. It was some other factor. If you see um, a big difference in them, then in the ha, this is evidence that the drug works. And, and, you know, if you don't give them the drug, you don't get roughly comparable results. They wanted to do it. The problem with the, the, doing this for the coronavirus is that you're trying to test this on people who have this terrible virus in them that could kill them. So there was no control group of not giving anybody anything and let's just see how things go because they understood that was not medically responsible. We don't want people to die 
just in order to prove a point. So they gave it to everybody. They gave one people a low dose, one people a high dose. They stopped giving the high dose to people because they started seeing heart arrhythmias and a bunch of them started dying, not just because of the virus, but because of the heart issues that were being driven in by the hydrochloroquine. The upshot of this is not, well, hydrochloroquine kills people. Clearly, this is a dangerous thing. Nobody should be uh, listening to the, to, to the president. Clearly, Rita Wilson is the medical expert that this country has been yearning for. Um, what it means is, okay, the high dose is probably dangerous for people who are already going through this, uh, this issue with coronavirus. The lower dose wasn't as bad. You know, this, this might involve some sort of enzyme in your body and how it breaks down the drug. It may depend on how long the virus has been in your system. There are a lot of different variables they got to sort through on this sort of things. And usually it takes years to think through and figure out and you know, run experiments and test trials and clinical trials and things like this. We don't have that time. We're trying to figure this out really, really quickly. So the information is going to be kind of inconclusive. So now the good news is this is between hydrochloroquine and resvimir, am I pronouncing that correctly, and putting people on their stomach and all the other stuff that's being tested right now. We're going to get more and more treatments for this that are probably, they're going to make the chances of surviving this better and better. That's the good news. Um, let's also point out, though, that survival is not necessarily, um, I mean, some people are going to have, you know, no lingering effects and they're going to be terrific and that's wonderful to see. There are some people who are going to have lingering effects and who may have uh, diminished lung capacity for quite some time. And, you know, apparently uh, hydrochloroquine and you know, uh, can cause, uh, you know, hallucinations and, and other, you know, frustrating, you know, uh, stressful side effects. You know, I don't, I don't think the treatment is worse than the disease. Disease can kill you, but we should not fool ourselves. All these people are going to be out of, their, out of the woods. So uh, as usual, medical information is complicated, but at least we're getting some good news on several fronts about treatment. No, that's absolutely right. And I just see this quote uh, in the CNN story on uh, putting people on their, on their stomachs. It's such a simple thing to do, and we've seen remarkable improvement. We can see it for every single patient. So I'm just imagining uh, people responding to this in so many different ways around the country. You got one over here saying, we've got to get to clinical trials. We need more ventilators. We need respirators. And then you got a Dr. House type walking into the, <laughs> into the room saying, flip them over, see what happens. And then all of a sudden, that's what works. <laughs> so have you tried lying on your stomach? Oh, man. Dr. House, I missed that show. But uh, all right. Speaking of doctors on TV, let's uh, move on to our crazy martini now, because unlike Dr. House, who's fictional, these are real people. Not sure they're real doctors. At least one of them's not. But uh, Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, and also to some extent, Dr. Drew have uh, made themselves very prominent during this crisis. A couple of them in just the past few days. First of all, just last night, uh, here's uh, Dr. Phil with Laura Ingram wondering why we're doing all these measures for the coronavirus and to mitigate that when we don't do it for other things. Look, the fact of the matter is we have people dying, 45,000 people a year die from automobile accidents, 480,000 from cigarettes, 360,000 a year from swimming pools, but we don't shut the country down for that. But yet we're doing it for this and the fallout is going to last for years because people's lives are being destroyed. So there you go, Jim. He's wondering why we don't do it for swimming pool deaths, cigarette smoking, or auto accidents. I think both of us could come up with pretty good reasons for why that's not the case. And then you got Dr. Oz uh, a little while back uh, on the Hannity Show 
talking about his plan for sending kids back to school. Yeah, I tell you, schools are a very appetizing opportunity. Uh, I just saw a nice piece in The Lancet arguing that the opening of schools may only cost us 2 to 3% in terms of total mortality. And, you know, that's any life is a life lost. But to get every child back into a school where they're safely being educated, being fed, uh, and making the most out of their lives with a theoretical risk on the backside, uh, it might be a trade-off some folks would consider. So he's taken a lot of heat for that, suggesting that the death rate would only uh, change by about 2 to 3%, but that's 2 to 3% of lives that matter to a lot of people. And so he says he wasn't trying to be callous or heartless, just trying to uh, figure out what was the, the best way forward there. And of course, Dr. Drew was very outspoken at the beginning, Jim. He thought a lot of people were overreacting to this. So uh, what do you make of the uh, TV docs and all this? Well, my first thought is that when Dr. Phil McGraw who, by the way, is the inspiration for the show Bull. Uh, I'll let you read in the significance of that. Uh, Michael Weatherby, you know, that the, you know, so he's a psychologist. You know, he's not dealing with issues of the, uh, the, the body and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when he says, you know, we can compare this virus to swimming pool deaths or, or car accident deaths, and he sees how people respond to that. Do you know what I want to ask, Dr. Phil, Greg? What? How's that working out for you? <laughs> the interesting thing is I remember during the, you know, when the war on terror was more prominent in our lives, people would point out that you were more likely to die falling off a ladder than being killed by a terrorist. By the way, all kinds of studies were done on this and you could tell the ones that were particularly shady because they would begin counting terrorist deaths of Americans January 1st, 2002. Did anything happen in 2001 which might spike the numbers a whole lot? Anyway. And I, I saw that, you know, those arguments and I'd sit there thinking like, yeah, but as far as we know, Greg, ladders are not plotting to kill us, <laughs> right? There is no Al Ladera, you know, group <laughs> getting together in which all of the ladders in our garages and sheds and, and workplaces all across the country secretly meet up to figure out how to kill as many of us as possible, right? You know, ladder accidents, we, we've kind of accepted this is something that happens in life. You have to, you know, they tell you which step to not go above to make sure it's firmly planted, you know, and we live with that risk. We all thought we were relatively safe, or many of us, you know, erroneously thought we were, you know, safe from terrorism if, if, on September 10th, 2001. And the next day we learned we're not, right? Now the good news is now we're not really worrying that much about terrorism these days. That's me knocking on wood. There are certain risks that we, we accept as part of the price of living in, living in a modern society. We accept the risk of accidents, right? Um, it's also worth noting car accidents aren't contagious. It's not like, oh, did you hear my, my brother had a car accident last week and then I had one too because I, you know, caught some sort of bad driving virus. I'll, I'll let you speculate whether bad driving viruses are floating around uh, in your community. It may depend on how much you've uh, been driving lately. Probably not very much. It does around our area, I can tell you that. Yeah, you know, I, I was gonna say, one of the few upsides is that when I do head out on those rare occasions, I'm not seeing that's nearly as much traffic. Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, uh, Dr. Uh, Drew, who by the way, I really liked up heading into this. Although it's worth noting, Dr. Drew is a therapist, right? Dr. Drew deals with addiction issues. All these people do not have full spectrum expertise about every medical issue under the sun. They have specializations. Chances are their area of expertise is going to be precise. And when they get out of that area of particular expertise, they're not going to know as much about the spread of diseases as much as a virologist is. The other kind of, you know, just nature of our society and pop culture and the media and the way things work is that the more time you spend being a doctor on television, 
the less time you can spend being an actual doctor <laughs> and not just seeing patients and keeping up to date on developments in public health. You're probably not leading, having, I'm going to guess it's been a while since Dr. Phil McGraw has had time to read a medical journal. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, these guys probably don't have a lot of time to, uh, you know, just kind of keep up to speed on all the clinical trials of new drugs and all that kind of stuff, the way a practicing doctor does. Now, it's really been interesting to see kind of uh, the hand waving or, or the idea of who, you know, ultimately should be held responsible for these TV doctors are running around saying things that are not all that accurate. I don't know if you saw it, Greg, but earlier today, Mika Brzezinski, co-host of Morning Joe, said, I really hope Oprah Winfrey speaks out about the dangerous statements by Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. We need her voice. She's the one who foisted them on us. I was just, you know, her voice is how we got these quacks. Um, <laughs> I suppose they're not quacks. I, you know, I remember Dr. Drew having his call-in radio show as a therapist. He's a perfectly good therapist for teenagers who are and the MTV t- uh, audience who, who are dealing with normal problems of life, might be dealing with addiction, might be dealing with, you know, abusive relations. You know, these guys, it's not these guys know nothing. It's just that they don't know this stuff. And we've just kind of gotten into this mentality, that the word doctor in front of someone's name means they know what they're talking about around all medical issues. And, you know, if you don't think that word doctor gives people a perhaps unearned sense of respect or unearned, you know, like E.F. Hutton, when they talk, people listen. I would just refer you to the former second lady of the United States, Dr. Jill Biden, right? She was a doctorate of education, but she wanted everybody to be calling her Dr. Jill Biden on every single reference. It is deeply frustrating. And to go back to, you know, Dr. Drew, who I probably is my, my favorite among the three, uh, although it would not surprise you, Greg, that Mehmet Oz is a huge hit over in Turkey. Uh, he is of Turkish heritage. The uh, Dr. Drew very early said that the media was overhyping this. And I think you can definitely, you know, there's, you, you and I are always up for some good media criticism, but he really made it sound like the virus was not a big deal and that you were extremely unlikely to catch this virus. Now, look, the circumstances were changing. The, the, you know, uh, we, there were, we were dealing with a new set of, inf- you know, with, with a, uh, a virus we didn't know very much about. Clearly, it's more contagious than everybody thought. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is the official name of this. And if you compare this to the original SARS, the good news is it's less likely to kill you, believe it or not. The bad news is it's way more contagious. And of course, we have, you know, the Chinese government um, not letting us know everything we need to know about the contagiousness of this virus for anywhere from three weeks to six weeks. But actually, something like that happened with the, the original SARS, too. So um, I should say the original SARS as well. Uh, so look, I wish these guys would have a certain amount of humility, but I have a sneaking suspicion like this is being the doctor with all the answers is how they built their reputation. It's how they built their brand in daytime television and all this other stuff. And unfortunately, we're dealing with a situation where the best medical minds don't fully understand it. We, it's really good that uh, children very rarely catch this. We're not really sure why. We're pretty sure a six feet is enough uh, space between you and somebody else, but we're not 100% sure. Is it airborne? They don't think so. Like, there are all kinds of things we're still learning about this, which is why, you know, look, so when the folks who are, you know, professional virologists and the very best in the world and the folks at the CDC aren't 100% sure about something, maybe the guy who's most famous for being on Oprah's couch is not going to have all the answers, America. Well, yeah, two responses to this. First of all, uh, Oprah deserves a ton of blame for this, as you said. So just having her release a statement on this, I don't think is going to be enough. And so my statement on that would be, Way to go, Oprah. Way to go. Uh, The other thing is, did you see the clip from The View a few weeks back? Uh, I think they were still on set at this point. And Whoopi Goldberg 
went on and on about how great of a doctor Jill Biden was and thought she should be the next Surgeon General and was just going effusive about what a fantastic doctor she was. And finally, someone else on the panel said, you know, she's a PhD, right? <laughs> and, and Whoopi was like, really? I don't, I don't know if I'm sure about that. And so, uh, yeah, there can be some confusion about that out there. So I don't think Dr. Jill should be the next Surgeon General. You know, look, then the lesson of this, and I say this, you know, whatever you think of Whoopi Goldberg, I really liked Guinan on The Next Generation. Um, <laughs> if I ever, you know, went on The View, I probably, I might accidentally call her Guinan. That's the kind of person I am. Um, I, you know, someone who plays a wise voice on television, will not always be a wise voice in real life. And a lot of these people who are on television every single day don't know everything. And they kind of just improv. They just kind of BS their way through it. They're expect, you know, I mean, you know, the only, th the only thing people should take away from this is don't trust celebrities. Don't trust people just because they're on television every day. Trust people who talk to you in a podcast every weekday. <laughs> Clearly we have all the answers. Absolutely right we do. All right. Well, Jim, I feel kind of bullish heading into uh, the weekend. We'll see where things stand on Monday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then. We'll see you on Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a kind review with lots of stars. Get us on those home devices by saying play three martini lunch podcast. Have a fantastic weekend and your stool will be waiting for you on Monday on the next three martini lunch.